from your favorite podcatchers on our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos. This is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 18, Godzilla vs. Megalon. OG fans and kaiju lovers, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Brian Scherschel. And I'm Nathan Marchand. And in this episode, we'll be covering the 1973 film Godzilla vs. Megalon. Yeah, we are going from the hidden significance of Godzilla vs. Gigan to this one. Not as much to analyze necessarily, but it's a an in, very interesting one, uh, nonetheless, quite unforgettable. Our related topic for this episode is the effects of nuclear testing. But first, to get everyone on the same page, we're going to do our short description of the film. Take it away, Nate. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Godzilla is a superhero protecting the surface world from Seatopia's monsters. He's more anthropomorphic than ever, with behaviors like taunting, posturing, and handshaking. Jet Jaguar is a determined, heroic robot controlled briefly by the Cetopians, who later gains temporary sentience after being freed by the heroes. Megalon is a dumb and temperamental beetle god sent by Cetopia to destroy the surface world. The sadistic alien cyborg Gigan is loaned by the Nebulans as Megalon's ally. Goro Ibuki, the creator of Jet Jaguar, is a brilliant electrical engineer who helps the JSDF defend Japan with his robot. His daring and macho friend Hiroshi Jinkawa, a race car driver, protects Goro by fighting the Cetopian agents. Rokuro Ibuki is Goro's kid brother, a feisty tinkerer who's always in the middle of the action. Emperor Antonio is Cetopia's vengeful leader who dispatches monsters to ravage the surface world in retaliation for nuclear tests that destroyed part of his nation. The human and kaiju plots intermix more as the film progresses. While interacting with a human-sized jet jaguar, the heroes are at first concerned with their own lives or fending off Cetopian agents. They eventually become observers to the kaiju battle. The JSDF attacks Megalon with tanks, macers, and jets, but they are soundly defeated. Jet Jaguar grows to 50 meters tall and holds off Megalon until Gigan arrives, the invading kaiju double-teaming the robot. The problem is solved when Jet Jaguar goes to Monster Island to fetch Godzilla, who swims to Japan and joins forces with the robot to battle Gigan and Megalon, who eventually retreat. The script was hastily written by director Jun Fukuda from a story outline submitted by Shinichi Sekizawa, using some ideas from a previous script by Takeshi Kimura. The result is a simplistic story with little substance. The film was shot in three weeks with a low budget after months of failed development. While special effects director Teruyushi Nakano was able to make a new Godzilla suit in a week, the movie features only a few new miniatures, most notably a massive dam. Stock footage was used extensively for Megalon's attack on Tokyo and for some of the kaiju battle. For a long time, a scene with Fukuda yelling cut was left in the film. Regardless, Nakano's trademark pyrotechnics are on display and the new kaiju suits do look fine. This film is a lighthearted fantasy romp that lacks any real gravitas aside from a scene or two. This isn't an experimental movie because it borrows heavily from popular superhero TV shows like Ultraman and a few tropes from the 1960s Godzilla films. 
This movie reinforces the style of Invasion of Astro Monster by featuring kaiju controlled by invaders, albeit from underground and not space. It also reinforces the style of All Monsters Attack by having a kaiju-loving kid as a protagonist. This was originally intended to be a Jet Jaguar film, who was inspired by a design submitted by a child in a contest held by Toho. However, after some screen tests and storyboards, the studio decided Jet Jaguar couldn't carry the film. The script was revised to include Godzilla and Gigan to make it more marketable. The intended audience was children. When released in Japan March 17, 1973, it grossed 220 million yen with an attendance of 980,000, making it the first Godzilla film to sell less than 1 million tickets. CinemaShares released the dub version stateside in April 1976 with an aggressive publicity campaign. It's since become one of the most widely seen films in the series thanks in part to many unlicensed home media releases. Most fans consider it one of the weakest films in the franchise, though some have a nostalgic fondness for it. Three minutes of footage was cut in the dub version to obtain a G rating. This included the opening credits, Rokuro's A Kidnapping by the Cetopians, the pornographic poster in the background of the container truck, a fight between Hiroshi and a Cetopian, the truckers throwing a Cetopian down a cliff, shots of a Cetopian agent's bloodied face when he fights Hiroshi and Rokuro, a later scene when he's crushed by a rock thrown by Megalon, and some swearing. The film sets up the conflict over nuclear testing by having Emperor Antonio take revenge against the surface world because of the destruction caused by the latest nuclear test. The film's only major theme is that nuclear weapons tests are detrimental and must be stopped. In a strange subversion, the Cetopians are villains despite being victims of the bomb, which is something rarely seen in the Godzilla series. This concludes part one of the podcast. And cut. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part two of the podcast, we do an opinion and discussion of the film in question. Uh, So, Nate, what do you think of this one? The acting is bland, the script is ludicrous, the monsters are silly, and the effects are hardly special. Arguably, it's the worst film of the series... And I love every second of this glorious train wreck. (laughs) In fact, if I could retitle this movie to anything, it would be the glorious train wreck. (laughs) It's one of those ones where I want to say I like it for what it is, but what it is isn't really all that great. (laughs) Um, It's to me, the the, the main word that I would use to describe this movie would be lazy (laughs) or rushed. (laughs) careless those are the kind of words that come into my it had a it had a very unfortunate production i will say that just sounded like they just they just sat on their hands for a really long time trying to figure out what they wanted to do and then they just decided okay it's crunch time you need to make something it didn't go quite as well as it could have been planned let's try to get through some of the things we actually like about this film first Well, the first thing I'll say is I do think the fight choreography in this is actually really good. You can Mm. tell that they they worked on it pretty well, and it's it's very animated. It's very energetic. So I enjoy it on that level. You know, the the usual sort of pizzazz is still present here. I don't think – unfortunately, there are points where they also worked in the stock footage into the monster fight, but – the new footage that you see is actually pretty well done. I just, they aren't doing anything interesting. It's not an interesting setting. I will say that. 
do we even know where they are? They like, mentioned it's kind of like a nondescript. Yeah, it's a, just place. a big open area. One thing I liked was the the scene with all of the the dam, the the all the dam destruction. Yeah, that actually looks really well put together, and like I'm used to seeing the the cut up version of this, but in the non cut up version of this that that we watched because I have the Blu-ray, it's actually really good. There's a lot of stuff that makes more sense because there are parts of it that are taken out of the sequence, and when you have that, then the continuity gets botched. I think the effects of the dam breaking apart and the water all coming out like that's really nice. That's yeah, really nice. That's one of a handful of actually good special effects sequences. It's a pretty ambitious one. I mean, if they really did put this together in three weeks, the fact that they were able to put that model together and then destroy it like they did, that's impressive for you know, a three-week production. Another thing that I actually like is, even though we don't see very much of it, and this was a rushed production, I think they did a decent job with Cetopia and trying to realize Cetopia. There's a nice matte painting. The set that they use isn't bad. And the costuming is all right. looks very Greek. But uh, I do actually like the the opening sequence with the with the lake that uh, drains uh, dries up. The effects are are decent in that one, and it's one of the few genuinely serious moments in the entire movie. One of the few times it has any real gravity, because they have to save the kid, and it plays into its barely talked about theme about nuclear testing because it was because of a nuclear test on a nearby island that that happened. Yeah, for a related topic for this episode, really, that's the only topic that there is that, that we can bring up because there's just nothing else the movie really touches on in that. But I, I just view this movie as, it's like, if you want to go slumming, then you go watch this one. M- maybe it's sort of like Godzilla 85 would be... Another one that I would say, if you're just if you just want to go slumming, then you know make fun of stuff and be like, haha, cheap, whatever. Yeah, there's a reason why Megalon is probably remembered in a lot of people's minds as a classic episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Yeah, it's one of the. This is one of the lowest rated movies in the franchise, definitely. And I think Godzilla's a- Revenge or All Monsters Attack is is the lowest, but this one's really close too. Which doesn't make any sense to me because rewatching these movies, All Monsters Attack has merit, has a lot of merit. I think it's really There's under- There's a lot more it. going on in that than there is in this. Well, yeah. the This one is the one that I think needs to be, it deserves to be labeled the worst in the, in the series, not All Monsters Attack. So what did you think of the music in this? Funky. It's, <laughs> it's the same composer for Hetera. Oh yeah, which definitely makes sense. But when I, even when I was younger, listening to this, I'm just thinking, what instruments are they using for this soundtrack? Because I swear there are times where I can't remember what's the kind of like that thing where it's like you're pulling on the twine. Tw- yeah, it's like the twang. Like, yeah. And that like, was like in effect. That was a big thing in the '70s to bring some of that folkish stuff back like that yeah even in japan really the best thing i can say about this music is that it fits to what's on the screen at the time yeah, which and- that's not necessarily a positive well and give it credit for this 
it actually has an original soundtrack. Whereas with Gigan, they were recycling Afukabe Ifu- music. Recycled Afukabe Ifu- music in this movie would be very out of place. Oh, it would. You, if, like if you're going through all the all the endless stock footage of Japan being destroyed by Ghidorah and then th- you know, slapping Megalon into the stuff along with it. I mean, imagine if there was that Ikafube Q playing during that. I mean, it would be totally different than everything else in the movie. Yeah. And so you have to find music that fits what's on the screen. And I guess that's the best thing I can say about it is that it fits what's on the screen. At about 1928 in the movie, that that's when we see Robert Dunham in that uh, outfit, <laughs> and then we get the picture of Seatopia, that were the the, the the matte painting. The, At least it looks like a matte painting. It looks like a picture out of a printed book, <laughs> actually. But I, I don't know what it is exactly. But it, I, the the MST3K joke that they do for that. Do you know what they do for that? Oh, it's been so long. I um, I can't remember all the jokes. Tom Servo says Houston. And it's, you know, cause it's this blinding <laughs> sunlight and everything. Yeah. I, I love that joke. But like, I, I also, I don't know why he's dubbed in the Japanese version. I don't know. I can't either. even tell looking at his mouth. I can't even tell what language he's speaking, but he's, cause he's dubbed in the English version too, I think. Yeah, he is. But uh, Robert Dunham was way better in Mothra and that tiny little part that he had. And then that much larger part that he had in Dogura, the space monster than this. I thought he was good in those, but this time he's wearing this weird, goofy outfit, and the movie gives him absolutely nothing to do, and then he has to deliver all these crappy lines that have no weight whatsoever. I guess just, there's nothing that's going on with with that. And, And the first time you see him standing there at his little podium or whatever. And then that guy that's standing next to him for no reason that says nothing. Yeah. I don't know why that guy's I, He's there, there he, he's, relaying information to him while they're observing oh, I think the all Nebula, the monster I think, stuff. I think the Nebulons gave him an intern. And then yeah. the, the intern's just standing there. He doesn't know what to do. <laughs> yeah, I, I was, The first time you see him in that outfit, though, it, it's just like... Are, are you, you going to throw it? The cockroach was his one thing. And, and that's... There's some symbolism going on with that, but this we 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 don't have any symbolism, really. We just got that. We just have Robert Dunham apparently about to go to a toga party. So, yeah, he's going to he's getting toga, ready for toga yeah, toga it's, toga. Yeah, it's Panhell <laughs> week, and he's and he's getting ready for for a whole week of partying, I guess. But it, it, the guy that stands next to him does nothing. Is great too, but it's. As soon as you see that, that's when the it really ramps up the the, the weird, ridiculous, the weirdness, and the, and then all the dancers who happen to be the only women in the entire movie, and they, they're probably women. They look like women. They look like women, but, and I mean, you know they're wearing it. their unfortunate hats and their underwear and what looks like some sort of sheer cloak. Or whatever. I'm just like, what in the heck is this? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I not what I envision when I think of Atlantis. Although there is one close-up of this rather fierce-looking woman. It looks like it's a close-up of her face, and I think you can see some sort of blade next to her. So I'm guessing she's supposed to be a warrior or something. But that's mm. the only shot we the, get of anyone like that. Yeah. So and and there's not a single woman that speaks. Nope. In this movie, not a single line, not a single word even. It's very odd. Nope. I think it's it's noteworthy for being the only Godzilla film where that happens. 
and then Easter Island appearing in the film makes it even sillier. And like when they show the picture of the Easter Island, all those Moe statues lined yeah. up and everything, and then Robert Dunham says something like, "Call." our friends on Easter Island, right? Yeah, like it's, it's some it's, sort of relay station for them or something. Right, and so then they show the picture, which, again, looks like a picture out of a book. Uh-huh. They they get the... It, and they show that for a second, just the line of statues. And I, and I keep... I imagine every single time, like, we, there's supposed to be some message going, your call is now being transferred. <laughs> and then, uh, the, and then like, some Rapa Nui music plays, you know, like some traditional Rapa Nui music plays while you're getting your call transferred. Probably transferred to the Nebulans because they're buddies with these cockroaches. Yeah, it's the intergalactic <laughs> Easter Island uh, transfer station. <laughs> and then they were saying that the, the statues, I actually looked this up, like, this is ridiculous. They were saying the statues were three million years old yeah i like really so i looked it up there they were they were a while they were constructed yeah it's about three thousand. i looked it up they were they're estimated to have been constructed between 1100 and uh, 1600 and 1100 bc and it's really no point to analyze it either because you know it's just it's fluff yeah this is nonsense it's nonsense it's fluff at about 30 minutes in, we get the infamous car chase sequence uh, and like the tire squealing, extremely annoying. That's, that's one of my yeah. pet peeves as a Mystery Science Theater fan is is when there's squealing of tires on dirt and, and other <laughs> surfaces like that that you yeah. know is total BS. <laughs> They're just constantly foleying in this annoying sound all the time during this chase sequence. It makes it even worse. It makes it even more unbearable to watch. Did you also notice how dramatically the terrain changes during that? Because we go from city street, stairs, to a forest of some kind, to almost like a beach or something. It's just completely open. I, I guess they... I guess. Where were they located? I, I don't know. Maybe they just figure, well, it's Japan. Everything's really close together. So we'll just throw, slap all this stuff together like this. I know that that this movie was only made a few years after the Love Bug and the Love Bug and this whole stock car racing stuff. You know, that, that was uh, it's a in, few years. That was years. in vogue at the time, mm-hmm. the and it was 60s, also a few 70s. years. It was also a few years after the movie Bullet with mm-hmm. Steve McQueen, which yeah. was the first great car chase movie. Yeah, and there's also Vanishing Point, mm-hmm. which was pretty good. I feel like this movie just digs itself a hole right then and there. And never gets out of it after after this chase sequence. And I love the I love the Mystery Science Theater joke where they were like, the gods do not approve of this inept car chase sequence. <laughs> that was one of the best parts of the whole thing. On the bright side, there is a local connection for us. There's oh, an yeah, Indi- they- there's an Indy five hundred sticker on one of Jinkawa's cars. Yeah. That's great. I like to think that he's an Indy car fan, so maybe he came to Indianapolis and watched the race once. Yeah, that would have been cool. I like how there are just two references to the Indy 500 in Godzilla movies. I know. It makes me happy. I love how that car chase ends in a quarry. Mm-hmm. Oh, quarry. The set, the setting of every low-budget movie and television show ever. You double as many things. It makes me think of Warrior of the Lost World. <laughs> because it shows those cars and everything just crashing into this, you know, quarry like numerous times. Yeah. It, it makes me think of that. One of the absolute funniest moments 
because it, I didn't see the, the uncut version of this as much as I saw the, the cut version. But the the fight that they have with Oscar Wilde guy. Oh, yeah. In, that's what that's when how they the... take the like when he, after the guy's taken over their house with the, the tons of stairs, whatever that. Yeah. The fun house that in. looks like it belongs in a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. Yeah, it's very odd. When they finally defeat him, you know how they finally defeat him? They have Roxon, and he's like riding that cube. Yeah, I know. With the photos on it. <laughs> he gets the and final like, blow. The kid is moving so slow yes. on it. And it's like, <laughs> eh, bump. And it like totally knocks him out. Yeah. And that's one of the funniest things in, in this movie is the, is the kid like, it's like he's riding it. He's he's riding the cube and then smacks it sort of bumps it into him. Right, I'm cube boy. <laughs> and it just looks so odd, but it's, it's because he's moving so slow that it's just hilarious and it's just like yeah, there he was... delivered the death blow. Yeah, well they could think about this though. This is coming from a pair of people, a pair of characters whose first thought is okay, we need some sort of weapon to help ourselves against this guy. So what and do they that. do? No, 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 no. What do they do? They go into an evacuated city, go into a toy store and yeah. grab a giant model zero. That's what I mean. That of all things. It's like to a smash gun? into somebody's face. A gun? Is just to get a plane. Gun, knife, katana. I don't care. Just I don't know. Weapons are so heavily regulated there. Who knows? Maybe Maybe. They could I don't know. They had to go and resort to a a toy plane? I don't know. Uh, well, now it's, you know. It's one of those things that it makes you just scratch your head for a second and then you just move on. Yeah. I mean, that, sort of, it goes on the list of the many, huh. You know, this going is going to inspire legislation to ban toy planes now, don't you? Uh, maybe. <laughs> and like instantly, like as soon as it hits him in the face, too, it's like a gusher. Like this blood just I know. everywhere. And I'm like, how wow. hard did he throw that plane? And he's just like, his nose explodes. Yeah, it's like, wow. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> Who needs so, knives when a plane can do that to somebody? Yeah, so we were making some excuses for, at least I was making excuses for the Godzilla versus Gigan stock footage usage. But this one, it's a little more uh, obvious. It's not so massaged in this time around. No, this actually might be the closest that... Godzilla gets to Gamera level lazy with the stock footage. Yeah, because we went through All Monsters Attack, and, and that has some of a point to it, because you're showing the, the kids all the exciting stuff about Godzilla. That's almost excusable. But And then with Godzilla versus Gigan, there was a lot of new footage that was in there. And it was the, the other stuff was added in there a bit at a time, kind of like a slow drip you know, in a couple places, but this is more gratuitous. It seems like the laser that they have coming out of the beam that's coming out of, um, out of his horn, Megalon's horn. Yeah. It seems like it's darker. It seems like it's almost an orange, but then yeah. they, they cut to all the Gira stuff and, and that's yellow. Yeah. And then he never, I think he only ever uses that, beam from his horn once outside of the attacking the city he never uses it on godzilla no he uses it once i think on jet jaguar so it was a power i think they invented just so they could use the stock footage it is it's quite different from the other movies in the series yeah and the thing is is they use the stock footage so much 
I, I was joking years ago, you could make a drinking game out of the use of the stock footage in this movie. You know, take a shot whenever there's a scene of stock footage. We'd be, we'd be dead after about 15 minutes. Well, it, it, the, the really challenging part would be during Megalon's attack on Tokyo when it keeps cutting back and forth really fast between new footage and stock footage. You'd just be like downing shots, about five shots in 10 seconds at that point. Yeah, that stock footage when it's Megalon slapped into all the other footage and then that slapped into the movie. Like we got the cuts are about as quick as if Mark Forster directed it. <laughs> Quantum of Solace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's about as, it's like bam, 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 really fast. Yeah. And the, the thing that makes it even worse is yes, I understand this was before the days of home media, but they were recycling footage from the movie from the previous year. The previous movie. Well, I guess That's Godzilla still versus be... Gigan technically does with the, with the Hedorob, tiny bit of Hedorob footage it uses, but it's um it's more is more gratuitous this time around in that respect. Well, and the thing is, is that that I still think would be so fresh in people's minds to be like, wait, I saw that last year. What I, you'd think, and, and then only... like the 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 part where Gigan knocked all those planes out of the sky, and then they think... give that to Megalon, yeah, and, and but you, you th- can still see that it's Gigan's yeah. claw. I'm just uh, like, guys, guys, yeah. <laughs> oh. Guys, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, the, the stock footage is one of the indicators of the laziness. I mean, they did have not very much time, low budget, and all that too. But I, I like to be able to to point out reasons why they use stock footage. And, and like we said, there's no home media back then, so it's a little bit easier. There's got to be at some point where you stop making excuses for things, and, and that's why I try not to make excuses for this one. Yeah, I don't think there's really any justifiable reason artistically anyway for why you would do this practically sure yeah but yeah but even that, then does that make it that's not an, enough of an excuse though i would i to be honest i would i think i on would have just opted to say there's no godzilla movie this year we can't but they, yeah. they had to have something i guess one thing that dawned on me in the movie is Gigan and Megalon are pretty similar. They both have these weird things on their arms. A weird claws. You know, yeah, they're both like height. They got the same weirdness going on with the design. Like they're designed very similar to each other. Their personalities are a little bit alike too, except I think I can take Gigan a heck of a lot more seriously as a threat. Mm. Megalon is pouty <laughs> he's temperamental he's like a little kid almost and not to mention the, you know those claws completely defy physics i have no idea how he can clap them together and make a drill <laughs> well and he there are all these motions where he does this little patty cake yeah motion with, his, with his arms like he's like sharpening the big old yeah what do they call him in mystery science theater chrysler buildings <laughs> that sounds chrysler about right on his arms I, it's almost like his geigen version Two, and they just kind of went with it. Yeah, I do I like know. I do like the little shot where after they've knocked Jet Jaguar down and they put their claws up next to each other, like they're saying "uh high five, buddy" or yeah. something like that. I mean that that was actually kind of cool, but it's just just ramp up the ridiculousness while you're at it. Yeah, I mean just <laughs> this really 
this really is an extra long episode of, say, Ultraman. I, I've seen a couple of Japanese superhero TV shows, Ultraman being one of them, and I did see one from the 70s that was 10 times more ridiculous than Ultraman ever got. And this movie feels very much like that, except yeah, a bit more polished, weirdly enough. And that's what this is really doing, this movie, is that they're they're doing the Ultraman superhero robot, whatever. But it is, is it another kind of Godzilla movie, or is it just... I would say it's Godzilla the superhero movie? I mean, that's really well, what it's it is. one of them. Yeah, I'm... Um, Think of it like this: at about the same time as uh, that this was that this was being made, Toho was actually producing its own little version of Ultraman called Zone Fighter that actually had Ghidorah, Gigan, and Godzilla show up in it. So I've I've only been able to find clips of the show, and that's usually the scenes where those monsters show up and you know, help the the. The, he's called Zone Fighter, this Ultraman-looking guy, and uh, Godzilla shows up and helps him out in a fight or something like that. And it, it's it's amusing, and it very much looks like Godzilla versus Megalon. It's the suit from Godzilla versus Megalon. And weirdly enough, I have heard from several sources that it's a, that Zone Fighter is actually considered to be in canon. Oh, with God, with, with the Godzilla, the Godzilla movies, hmm. which is really bizarre. And and it is because this was doing so well on TV for the most part, and so they wanted to have a Godzilla movie that I th- had this. I mean, that wasn't the original idea, but no, I, I think Zone being, Fighter came after. It ended this. up, yeah, it ended up being Ultraman thrown into a Godzilla movie, pretty much. Yeah, Brian, what do you what do you think of Jet Jaguar? <laughs> um, I'm not entirely sold on Jet Jaguar. <laughs> Jet Jaguar is so incredibly ridiculous. I, I will admit, though, I don't like the smile. I know the smile is odd, it's but creepy. I, I didn't think it was creepy. I thought it just added to the ridiculous motif of the whole thing. He looks. I love. I don't how like he, anything that constantly smiles at me. I don't care what it is. It's like the Jack Nicholson smile. Yeah, from the for the Joker. Yeah, a little bit. But I, I don't know if it's the superhero fan in me or maybe the nostalgia because this was was one of the first Godzilla movies I saw, but I, I can't hate Jet Jaguar. In fact, if I was going to pick a monster character from any of these movies to attempt a cosplay, it would be Jet Jaguar. <laughs> it's because it's just, it's so goofy. He's, in fact, in some ways, he's actually worse than Superman. There's been this long-standing joke about how Superman can just invent superpowers whenever he needs them. Jet Jaguar does the exact same thing. He's a walking plot device, is really what he is. Oh, we need to hold off Megalon for a while. I am magically now sentient and self-programming, and I learned how to increase my size like Ant-Man. You okay. Know, it, yeah, it self-actualizes, which you know we have whole movies and TV shows now that that are about androids self-actualizing and robots self-actualizing, and then this all happens in the space of about ten seconds. And then he magically gives up his sentience after he wins the battle. 
for some reason. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff in this movie that <laughs> happens for, for no reason. And it's not like we're, this isn't one of those movies that really sets out an expectation that we're, it's supposed to make sense, but still I would like it to make sense every once in a while. Yeah. The, 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 the Jaguar thing just doesn't, I don't hate Jet Jaguar. I just don't, I do get it too. I, I get it, but I'm just not gonna, I'm just totally not sold on it. The monster battle too. Like, I don't really care for it. There's so much posturing. Like we have reached, we, we've reached the peak of the opposite, like total opposite of Godzilla raids again. Oh yeah. There's absolutely no, which I like the, the fight in Godzilla raids again. I like it quite a bit. It, it looks great. And, and it's choreographed well, and they're just going at it. And it's very, you know, animalistic, but, but this is just, hi, I'm an actor. I'm in a suit. Let's do a bunch of posturing and then do our sumo wrestling routine. It just doesn't do much for me. The, this fight scene, for one thing, it's long. It's really long. I think it's a good, what, 20 minutes? It seems like If it. not longer, it's Michael Bay level long. And a lot of fire, too. Yeah. Explosions. Actually, that was one of my, that's actually one of my favorites. Another one of my favorite scenes in the movie is the, the, the part where. Megalon makes the the ring of fire. I went down, down, down yeah. into a burning ring of fire and around Godzilla and Jet Jaguar. And it, I, if you're looking at this as a superhero movie, a really stupid, a really endearingly stupid superhero movie, that's actually a pretty cool moment. And they're standing there, they're surrounded by the fire. Like, what are we going to do? And then suddenly Jet Jaguar's like, oh, wait, I can fly. Yeah. <laughs> and then they just fly away and guy get a megalon like oh why didn't we think of that <laughs> there's also this this part we we're starting to get the stuff where one of the monsters or jet jaguar or godzilla one of them they get hit by something and then they get stunned and then they put their arms kind of up like they bend their arms up at the elbow and then they just do this dumb falling backwards routine by the time we get around to 1975, we will have seen it far too many times. But it's just, that also doesn't really do much for me. It's like, bonk. Oh, I'm going to fall down now. Yeah. But it's, I understand this movie is for the kids. At least I would hope. Regardless of the other stuff that's in the movie that you think wouldn't go with kids. But Yeah. And, and, I, at, and at this time, I just kind of want to stop making excuses. But. Yeah. The, I don't know. The monster fighting doesn't do much for me. There, and like the, the thing where, where Megalon makes Jet Jaguar dizzy. <laughs> I was about to bring like, that up. Who thought of this? <laughs> Did you know that actually inspired a meme on the internet? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Go home, Jet Jaguar. You're drunk. Mm -hmm. I have distinct memories of showing this movie to a couple of my friends back when I was in middle school, high school, who were Power Rangers fans, so I figured they would get into this one. Oh, yeah, there's definitely a plug into. Yeah, and <laughs> I remember at the end, after Gigan and Megalon have been defeated, and they're playing the the, the, you know, the really upbeat music, and then it's Godzilla and Jet Jaguar shake hands, but I remember one of my buddies saying, are they gonna hug? Yeah. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> I almost wouldn't have been surprised, though. And we, we talk about MST3K a lot, and I, I don't know 
um, exactly what the what the take that that the producers of this movie or people associated with the movie might have of the MST3K cut. I mean, I know that that it wasn't. Uh, it was when the printing went through. They they didn't uh, ask the right people, and, and so that's what that's what caused uh, so many of the copies of this of that MST3K collection to be returned, lost, etc. Just because that that was a little mistake on on, uh, on behalf of probably Rhino, I would say. Yeah, it was um, Rhino. But uh, I think they were sort of treating it like it was public domain. Yeah, it and was erroneously believed for years that the dub version of the movie had somehow fallen into public domain. That's why there was a bazillion releases mm-hmm. of this movie on VHS and even a couple on DVD before Tokyo Shock finally did it the studio, officially a few years ago. The studio could have stopped those VHS releases earlier. They just didn't. And so they waited, unfortunately, before realizing, oh, yeah, we need to protect our content. Yeah, and and I think that's one of the reasons why this film is generally hated by the fan base, even though there are some who have a, some nostalgic fondness for the movie. A lot of people hate it because it ended up, because of the aggressive campaign a publicity campaign that cinema shares did with it when they released it in 76 and complete with a poster that was trying to cash in on the King Kong remake with the world trade center. So mm-hmm. you have this, I would say it's actually a pretty awesome looking poster of Megalon and Godzilla fighting on top of the world trade center, but it never happens in the movie. And then it, it was shown on NBC in prime time. What about one of the only times I think that a Godzilla movie ever had something like that happen. And, but it got edited down to one hour and it had host segments with John Belushi in a lizard suit and all of that. It it became such a high profile movie. So a lot of people who had never seen a Godzilla movie saw this one and they became the norm for Godzilla. Yeah, They assumed that this must be a typical Godzilla movie, B movie schlock for kids. Yeah, Terribly hurt the reputation of the franchise, I think, because the thing just got overexposed. Yeah. I mean, of all the movies in the Godzilla franchise to overexpose that one. It was weird. I don't think it was necessarily intended. It just happened. It's the impression well, that's that how I disasters get. happen. They just happen. Yeah, this was a natural disaster, or maybe even an unnatural disaster for Godzilla. Yeah, it, it it made Godzilla become associated with bad production values and just flat out lazy stupidity. It just didn't help any. And like for fans, it, it made it made it harder for fans to be like, oh hey, you know Godzilla. And then, you know, their friends are like, oh, yeah, we know about Godzilla. We know that it's a total, you know, piece of junk and this is all cheap and ha ha ha. It's the sor- It's the movie that made it so that Godzilla and kaiju fans had to justify their fandom. It's like they always had to ha- add caveats when they're talking about these movies. It was like, oh, yeah, I like Godzilla movies, but they're not as bad as you want as you think they are. I swear they're not. Yeah, and this is one of those movies that makes people have to say that. And that's, I think, as a fan, that's kind of why I would probably resent it the most. It's not the bad production values alone, but the fact that it got so overexposed and that it became this big this big problem. 
to have to explain away. I hate having to explain away this movie. So we have the problem of having to explain this. And at the same time, it's, it's still there. We can't get rid of it. I, I don't have any nostalgia feeling for this either because I watched it, I think, for the first time when the Rhino release of the MST3K version came out. Oh, so you saw the MST3K version first. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so th- there there wasn't anything... I could tell that the movie had been cut. I just couldn't tell all the places, of course, because there's not there wasn't a good version of it next to me. The, I mean, the Blu-ray version of this it looks pretty good, and there's a lot of stock footage that's not cleaned up. That's you know interspersed, of course. But the the like the the part with the dam that looks pretty good on the Blu-ray. There are some other moments in the movie that look good on Blu-ray, and they. They use the widescreen to to affect well, and uh, like like some of that technical stuff looks okay. But overall, yeah, I, I don't like having to explain this, and it's too bad so many people saw it. And it's one of those movies that you almost regret other people saw it. Yeah, it doesn't help that this is also probably the softest version of Godzilla we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the design of the suit. I mean, I'm glad that it's a it's a new suit. And it's, I mean, you can tell it looks new, but it's got the big puppy dog eyes. I don't like the lips and the mouth. Yeah. It's, it's like curved and stuff. It looks like a dog's mouth. Yeah. That's why I said. It's got the big puppy dog eyes. It's meant to look super friendly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's a kid's movie and the kids love Godzilla. Godzilla is a superhero. So we got to make him look friendly. And you the, know, the it, tongue. Yeah. It's, I think I wrote down in my notes, it's, it's. In this movie, Godzilla is Barney's cooler cousin, is what he is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's just I have no other way to describe the way this suit looks. And yeah, the other one got ruined because it got blown up ten thousand times in the previous movie. I don't think they should have necessarily gone with that suit again because obviously they needed a new one. But this one just doesn't quite meet the expectations that I did for the the for the previous one. Because the previous one is one of my favorites, the one used from Destroy All Monsters. Yeah. Through, uh, besides All Monsters Attack through Godzilla versus Gigan. I guess the fact that this ends up ruining the reputation of the franchise is to, to be expected. It is the thirteenth movie. Yeah, what a movie to have as the thirteenth movie <laughs> in your franchise. I almost feel cursed if you weren't um, so inclined. So the kid from Godzilla versus Hedera is back for this one Hiroyuki Kawase he was less annoying in uh Hedera must say I actually didn't at first realize that it was the same kid I know I didn't either it's... at first like him reacting to all that stuff in Godzilla versus Hedera like all that heavy stuff he did a pretty good job but this they just like none of the actors get they, they don't get anything to really work with yeah in this one he's a Gamera kid pretty much except he isn't the f- main the complete main character and doesn't have psychic connections to godzilla or anything yeah and if like i was the, if i was the kid by this time I, i'd be like oh this is getting worse i need to get a different job or something yeah and honestly kid daisy duke called she wants her shorts back yeah the the this is one of the thing that runs through mst3k a lot is the upsetting shorts jokes <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> Hiroshi refers to Goro as senpai. Did you notice that? Yes, I did. Yeah, which means teacher or master. 
but yeah, but Hiroshi doesn't appear to be Goro's student. Not that I can tell. No, because he's not learning about robots and stuff. No, no. But this this sort of leads to the fact that we saw in a couple of sources that that where where critics say that this might be the one uh, like gay Gojira film that we see, and I I would say maybe yeah the the two men in the movie and the boy make a make a case for that possibly uh and like i don't know maybe they're an alternative family i don't know but it it does explain hiroshi in a lot of ways because like i said he refers to him as master teacher but yeah yeah i don't know exactly what's going on there and so I guess if there was going to be a gay Godzilla movie, this would definitely be the one that you could say that is most likely. Probably. But, uh, I don't know. Um, Interestingly, there is something of a meme that goes along with this. I'm not sure exactly what the source of it, but there's this little joke that gets tap- tossed around in fan circles online, which is, I hope Senpai will notice me. Yeah. <laughs> so it goes along with that. Yeah. Yeah. And like, um, I-, I think Hiroshi seems to be like the the muscle in the, between the two of the them. Muscle, and, yeah. yeah. And so like, there's the, that's why we get that character. But it seems like these characters all just got shoehorned into this movie for more reasons than a relationship because we, you know, we get the kid into the movie and that's, I'm sure supposed to be to get more kids to watch it or like it or whatever. Even though yeah. when I was a little kid and watched movies, that's not how I worked. I, I wasn't like, Oh, I want to be the little boy. No, I don't want to be a little bit. I want to be, I probably would have wanted to be either Goro or Hiroshi. Maybe. I don't know. But like, I didn't ever, I never watched as a kid though. But the thing is, I, I think that Hiroshi got shoehorned in there for why? Because they needed someone to do the action. Right. They needed the car chase and they couldn't have Goro do it. And so they had Hiroshi do it. Yep. And like, I don't know. It seems like there were way more reasons for why things happen in this movie than any kind of story continuity or, or something like that is they weren't crafting a story here very well, at least no, (laughs) ended up, but I think there's, I don't think they, they sat down and were like, Hey, let's, let's, let's just do this idea. And it all just came out like this. That's definitely not the way it worked, but at, at the same time, I don't know why you would also apparently plan that there would not be a single solitary woman that says a single solitary thing in this movie. And that it's literally two guys that do happen to be taking care of a boy. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, why else would they have it that way? What they didn't, there weren't any women to hire. (laughs) So I don't know. That's that's why I would say it's it, it, there's maybe some sort of gay context, but we'll, we'll probably never know. Nah, uh, I doubt we ever will. So what about these Cetopian people? Like, there's a there's a line in the in the dubbed version of this where Hiroshi shows up and he's like, "Where's the European guy?" Yeah. And I thought, well, that sort of makes sense because we got Robert Dunham and a toga, and he's Emperor Antonio. Which I did they ever mention him by name? I don't remember. I, I don't think so. I, I don't think I would have known the name unless I saw the the credits and stuff about it. Yeah. Um but I, I would say maybe they're they're just very bitter Europeans from Atlantis that decide to get revenge on everybody. Yeah, well I mean they it sounds like they 
have a legitimate gripe, but we never really see anything of it. It's all told to us. They're victims of the bomb, so we're told, but they're the villains. Yeah, it's hard to imagine, like, can you imagine the natives from the first Mothra movie wanting to take revenge on everybody? It just wouldn't work. No. Well, this doesn't work either, (laughs) but there's not much that we can get out of this. No. I mean, but it's... It's like you're sitting on at least one interesting idea and you do nothing with it because that's the whole point of this movie. We do nothing with it. Yeah, we, we don't get any kind of anything to analyze in this. But yeah, I mean, I could, we, couldn't just, we have at least seen, I don't know, at least one or two people who had radiation sickness or something. Well, that would make us eh. no. That 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 would make the Cetopians sympathetic. Then no, that's and true. Then we wouldn't, and then we'd have a sympathetic villain. That would complicate the story a lot. Yes, it would. Then, yeah, then we would have been clouding, clouding our nice little black and white revenge story. Revenge, yeah. <laughs> that's and what that's this really thing. boils I, down and that's to. That's I think I'm not really one for revenge plots anyway. No matter what movie I'm watching, and, and so the that just falls flat to begin with for me. Okay, was there anything else you wanted to say? No. Okay, cut. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast, we talk about an issue that either was brought up by the film or was going on in Japan at the time the film was released. So for this one, we there's really only one issue that we could tell that was brought up at all in this movie. At least the only thing is, of substance. Uh, yeah, which are, where we're going to try to cling on to any kind of substance that it'll give us. And so uh, it'll be a nuclear testing and the effects of them, which uh, we, we did talk about this a little bit in episode three, where we talked about the Bikini Island. And Castle Bravo. Castle Bravo, yeah. Yeah, and we've so mentioned... We, uh, we, we, we talked about it, but, yeah. but this will give us a little bit more time to actually get into this issue more because it is a very, very important issue to the Godzilla story at the, you know, for the, for the beginning of Godzilla, of course, but then nuclear testing has been, uh, is, is an issue again now. And so, uh, it's a good time to sort of talk about the past and about possibly the future. Yeah. We've mentioned several nuclear tests over the course of the, of the episodes we've done with the podcast so far, Castle Bravo being probably the most important, I would say, and also Tsar Bomba and for, from the Soviets and 596 with China. And those are some of the, you know, the major nuclear tests that have gone on in the, over the decades. Um, the first nuclear test, however, was, uh, was codenamed Trinity. It was, yeah. um, it was conducted July 16th, 1945 in the Hornada del Muerto Desert, which is about 35 miles southeast of Socorro, New, uh, New Mexico. It was part of the Manhattan Project. It was codenamed Trinity by J. Robert Oppenheimer, the, the famous director of the Los Alamos Laboratory, where the First, where the nu- the original nuclear bombs were being developed, uh, it was inspired by lines from a John Donne poem, a couple different poems actually, and it was the same model of nuclear bomb that was used for the Fat Man, which was the one that was dropped on Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. To be honest, there's so much information, some really interesting information on this test that we could do an entire podcast episode just on that, probably several. A lot of really interesting stuff. But since 1945, 
there have been a total of 2,212 nuclear tests, to date anyway, uh, conducted by eight different nations. 1,032 were conducted by the U.S., 727 by the Soviet Union, and the rest were conducted by the U.K., France, China, India, Pakistan, and most recently, North Korea. And the Nevada test site is the most uh, nuked location on Earth, right? Yes. To give a little bit more context, the little boy bomb is the one that hit Hiroshima, and that is 15 kilotons. And so then the fat man bomb, that was what hit Nagasaki, and that was 22 kilotons, so about 1.5 Hiroshima's. And then today, uh, the, the most, some of the biggest bombs that are available, which is uh, the Trident that the United States has, and that's 455 kilotons. Oh my gosh. Which is about 30 Hiroshima's. Which that's gigantic, and then I guess the biggest bomb that Russia has now is 800 kilotons, and that is uh, 53 Hiroshima's. Oh my gosh. And then the bomb that North Korea did underground on September 3rd, 2017, that was roughly, at least is estimated to be about 140 kilotons, so that's about 9.3 Hiroshima bombs. Nothing to sneeze at, though. No, no, it's quite significant, and it caused an earthquake when it uh, was detonated that was picked up by numerous uh, seismic uh, instruments around the world. We've all heard about a lot of the the horror stories that came out of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and just the, the awful things that happened to those people. But there have been documented cases where just the fallout from these nuclear tests have had detrimental effects. Now, not nearly as dramatic as what happened to the people who were affected by the bombs, but still, you know, it's, it's stuff to, to take into account. Nuclear fallout is essentially irradiated particles for, uh, that are left over from a nuclear explosion that fall to Earth in the form of a dust. And according to the CDC... People can be exposed to fallout in one of four ways. Uh, one, direct skin contact with the particles themselves, which are in, usually would be in the air. So we have external exposure. From fallout particles that fell on the ground and later came in contact with the skin. So again, external exposure. You can also be exposed by consuming plants, milk, or meat that had radioactive fallout on it or in it. So you would, that would be internal from breathing radioactive material that's floating around in the air. So again, you're dealing with internal exposure. And the CDC has identified 19 isotopes in radiation that are believed to affect people's health. Some remain for short times, and some remain for much longer times. They, uh, the particles will remain in the environment for a very long time, even to this day, uh, after all of these nuclear tests. What's a little bit scary is, according to the CDC, anyone in the continental United States who has been born since 1963 has been exposed to at least a small amount of nuclear fallout. Yeah, that's pretty scary considering how much cancer is around. Yeah. When I read that, my mind was blown because I'm just thinking, I've never been to any of these test sites, and you're telling me that... I've still been exposed to at least a tiny bit of fallout. 
And that's the thing. It is, it is after, at the end of the day, it is a small world after all. And no matter how remote the location that these tests are in, whether it's on Christmas Island or middle of nowhere in Kazakhstan or, or all these other various places that nuclear weapons have been tested, the, it, in a lot of ways, it, at a certain point, it doesn't matter where you're testing it because all of that material is going into the Earth's atmosphere because the explosion goes so high into the air, that's going to be in the atmosphere no matter what. And it's going to be dispersed to possibly everybody. Actually, I think I also found some stuff when I was researching this that said that because of the sheer number of tests that have been conducted and the fact that they were done all over the world, it seemed like it was conceivable that there's no place in the world that hasn't been exposed to at least a small amount of fallout. Essentially, yeah. Well, already this sounds more interesting than the oil price shock of 1973. We'll let somebody else talk about that. Let's continue on with this. What else do we have? The thing is, the concerns over the effects of fallout on human health is not a recent development. It's not a recent concern. The CDC stuff I was finding was within the last 20 years, but this the concern about this was going all the way back to the 50s. In fact, there was uh, some very interesting things that happened just after the detonation of, of the Trinity bomb, which the thing is, is at the time, the full extent of the dangers that fallout presented wasn't really known. So they didn't do any evacuations and the test was conducted in secret. So nobody knew it was going on. And what's a little bit scary is there was a ranch within 15 miles, 15 miles of the test site. Yeah, no thanks. Can you imagine being some average New Mexican at that time, minding your own business, taking care of the ranch, probably a little worried about the war, and then suddenly there's this mushroom cloud out of nowhere? And you might have even been able to see it. Yeah, you would have definitely yeah. been able to see it. The hydrogen bomb test, definitely, but those were conducted more of, you know, those weren't conducted in Nevada, but, um, yeah. Well, here's something, when I read this, I was this is a little bit terrifying. There was fallout from this blast that was detected as far away as Indiana, our yeah. home state. Yeah, the Indiana. jet stream. Yeah, the jet stream frequently goes over Indiana too, which does not help because you're essentially you have a channel of, of the air that's quickly going through a certain part, and then those particles then those particles then get deposited on the ground. Yeah, but the ones you really want to feel sorry for are the 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 immediate residents around this test. They were exposed to twenty thousand millirems of radiation that is 10,000 times the safety limit put on by the nuclear regulatory commission so that's like what was the term we keep i kept running into deleterious genetic damage Jeez. yeah and this was all they were uh, they were breathing this in they were drinking it from contaminated rainwater or and if in, anything grew out of the ground then you got it that way mm -hmm. too goats contaminated goat's milk because the goats uh -huh. would you would graze on contaminated vegetation yeah and then animals also and then anything else that gets into the food chain too yeah mm -hmm. it it touches everything but in the the 50s see that was the immediate thing in the 50s there was a russian physicist named andrei sakharov who in 1958, 1958, theorized that the explosion of a one-ton, 
one ton H-bomb, which is equivalent to about a million tons of TNT, would cost 6,000 lives to cancer over the course of generations. He's not saying it's going to happen immediately. It's going to be over the not even yeah, over that's the course not how of radiation a, works. It yeah. isn't immediately. It's, it's not even all over, these movies we see. Yeah, but. it's not even <laughs> over the course of a few years. He's talking about generations. Yeah. Decades, perhaps even hundreds of years, centuries. Yeah, interacting with DNA. Yeah. And with the Soviet Union detonating many bombs and tests, the largest exceeding 50 megatons, Sakharov estimated that hundreds of thousands of lives would be lost. Now, he was a loyal Soviet citizen, and he believed that his nation needed to have nuclear weapons as deterrence against Western powers. But he wanted those tests to be conducted with safety and restraint, and he did try to use his influence to support a nuclear test ban. But as time went on, he became an internal dissenter and a political adversary of the USSR after he tried to halt one of two nuclear tests that were being conducted by two rival labs they were going to do them at the same time. Because he believed that exposing millions to fallout for little military or scientific gain was redundant and honestly immoral. But he was rebuffed by Nikita Khrushchev, who was the Soviet leader at the time, who believed that scientists shouldn't meddle in the affairs of politics and policy. And Sakharov was quoted as saying, a terrible crime had been committed, and I couldn't prevent it. I dropped my face on the table and wept. Sakharov then went on to win the Nobel Peace Prize and then became a political leader. He was a very, very huge figure against the Soviet Union. I also found some information on a study that was conducted that examined the effects of nuclear fallout on Norwegian pregnant women uh, back in the mid-50s to about the early 60s because they were in close proximity to the Novaya Zemlya nuclear test that was conducted by the, the Russians in the Arctic. Yeah, I believe that's where Sarbomba was also. Ah, detonated. okay. That would make sense. There, the study realized that there were varying levels of radioactive exposure during that time frame, which actually probably helped with the study because about that time there was a, a moratorium on nuclear tests from November 58 to September 61. But they found that in the hardest hit areas that pregnant women received an annual dose of radiation equivalent to the dose of a full-body CT scan and 60 times the dose of an external mammogram X-ray. It's not lethal, but it can be harmful. They then compared the siblings born to these women, and they found that ones that were exposed in utero uh, had reduced IQ points in boys by the age of 18, reduced educational attainment, and, and then there was reduced educational attainment high school completion and earnings. And then a one standard deviation in ground exposure led to a 1% decrease in high school completion for men and a 2% decrease for women. Yeah. And not all that, like we said, not all this happens at once. And so who knows if it actually continues on mm -hmm. the CDC stuff. They actually on their website, uh, on the page I was looking at where I was talking about this was Wanted to, it was saying as upfront as much as it could that despite the fact that we've all probably been exposed to at least a tiny amount of fallout, that it doesn't 
just automatically mean you're going to get cancer because uh, that can depend on many factors such as where you live when the testing occurred how much time you spend outdoors the weather how much milk you drink how many fresh fruits and vegetables you eat in your lifestyle and a bunch of other things so yeah, which it, is why that when uh, fukushima happened that was why there was the the risk with vegetables and other mm-hmm. stuff like that yeah yeah so they said that the in the actual increase of cancer is pretty small but I was thinking to myself the whole time, that's small comfort, guys. Really. Yes, small comfort. It's, it's not very comforting, no. No. Uh, they said that, in particular, exposure to iodine-131, especially in childhood, can increase your chances of thyroid cancer in adulthood. But they said that thyroid cancer is uncommon and it's curable. Uh, then there's strontium-90, which they said can kill bone marrow and give you leukemia. Yes. Again, they said this, those are small. The, the increase in that is small. And again, I say small comfort. Yeah, let me judge what's small. Yeah. Or let people who have leukemia judge what's small. Yeah. I also found out that there's a bit of a movement the for the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, which has been around since 1996. That's when the, the treaty was passed, but it hasn't been ratified by everybody yet, so it hasn't taken effect. But on their website, they mentioned that Doctors in Semipolentinsk, Kazakhstan, where hundreds of nuclear te- uh, nuclear bomb tests were conducted, those doctors believe that 60,000 people have died from radiation-caused cancers. And over 500,000 people affected by the radiation receive disability for it from the Kazakh government. Mm-hmm. That's pretty significant, I would say. I'm surprised more people don't talk about this. Yeah, when you see figures like this about how many people die from stuff like this, this is really stunning. Yeah, sixty thousand people. Yeah, that's a, that's in a, that's fifty a city. years. That's pretty big. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the last the last nuclear test in the atmosphere of a, of a nuclear weapon was uh, nearly forty years ago, and that was in 1980, and that was in uh, the western desert of China where that was uh, that was tested. Most recently, we had an underground test in uh, North Korea on uh, 9-3 of 2017. And that was uh, underground, like we said, about 140 kilotons. And as far as Bikini Atoll goes, they still can't return there. I know. Like the... It's still so radioact- radioactive that there's no way they're going to go back. Yeah, they, the United States evacuated the island and told them they could go back in six months. And that was 60 years ago. They still can't go back. The effects to the environment aren't very good either for nuclear testing, of course. Uh, part of it involves depletion of uh, the ozone that's in the atmosphere, or the stratosphere, actually, I guess it would be. And then uh, also changes in climate due to the fact that there's just so much material that gets thrown into the air and it gets thrown so high. It's kind of like how when like volcanoes affect things, because in a... Uh, in 1815, there was a huge volcanic eruption that caused a, a lot of uh, temperatures to cool all over the world. And so it's, a, it's quite, kind of similar to that, only it's actually radioactive soot that gets thrown into the air instead of uh, just volcanic soot. I've actually heard that that is what a nuclear winter is. If enough of these bombs get set off, it throws so many particles into the atmosphere, it blocks out the sun. Yeah, enough of the bombs, like the, the giant ones that, that the United States and Soviet Union or Russia have now, 
uh, if enough of those were blown up, then yeah, it would create probably a catastrophic nuclear winter. If we were to get another one of these tests done, like a hydrogen bomb test in the Pacific Ocean, it would be pretty catastrophic because it it would affect life that in the ocean it would basically kill everything in the blast zone for sure that's in the ocean and then it would it would affect all the marine life around it too and then also any plant any human life any uh, animal life that all gets affected by radiation no matter what it is and so like trees can get affected by it and and then uh the like forests can actually be burned down by radioactive fallout just because it's so uh, dangerous and so like literally anything gets genetically affected by the radiation that occurs so it's really no no good uh, no good news at all for any of this it's actually quite serious and we hope that there aren't any more hydrogen bomb tests in the atmosphere or in the water anytime soon so yeah let's let's double back and look at how the movie addresses this issue because it's rather obviously it's saying we shouldn't be doing any more of these tests, but at the same time, it's very odd in that it's having victims of the nuclear testing taking revenge and, but they're actually the bad guys. And so it's a little bit different for a Godzilla movie, I would say, because normally we've had a very normal uh, way of looking at the victims of these. Yeah. But yeah, this, the movie's definitely trying to highlight that the nuclear testing needs to stop. And this was at a point where it had not stopped. It was still going to be going for seven more years, just blowing stuff up in the atmosphere. It didn't it imply that, that in, it was in the Aleutian islands. I think somewhere around test. there. Well, I'm glad we weren't nuclear testing there in real life. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a bit worse, but I guess uh, at the end of the day, this just becomes a normal sort of activism for wanting to get rid of nuclear weapons at all. But it's a good way to, say get rid of nuclear testing first yeah it's just i don't know i just feel like the this whole theme just kind of gets tacked in (laughs) yeah there's very little in the movie that's actually yeah it is rather it is rather interesting i'm glad they actually chose this subject for once i wish they would have gone done a little more with it but at least it gives us more time to sort of talk about nuclear testing and why it's so extremely bad it does make me wonder if they had been able to spend more time working on this movie, could it have been better at the very least? Um, we do get a more kids kind of film and we haven't had one of those in a couple years. And so at least we get to have that again there. I, I can totally see that there were reasons why this movie was made, but I just, uh, it is, it's without a doubt, one of the weaker ones in the franchise. And it's one that, uh, it's not something that you can unsee. That's definitely true. Despite the oil shock of 73, the uh, the Japanese economy did very well in 1973 still. Uh, it was uh, economic growth, GDP growth of 8.03%. And so it was another uh, really good time for the uh, Japanese economy continuing on. Well, I think that about finishes up our discussion for our related topic. Yeah, that's another episode of Kaiju Vision Radio in the can. Our next episode will be Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla from 1974, a movie meant to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the franchise. If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, 
Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Brian Scherchel, and I edited this podcast. And I'm Nathan Marchand, and I'm the podcast webmaster. Sayonara!